Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Jason Moore, welcome back to our illustrious duo cast. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Brian, and uh, just wanted to let you know that this is officially the 50th duo cast. Oh, wow. Yep. Jeez, that really snuck up on me. I had no idea. (laughs) We've done 50 of these bad boys. That's badass. These are so fun. Yeah. I think they're a a nice way to recap previous episodes and just connect with each other when we're still trying to be careful about COVID. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know. I really look forward to it. I do too. I do too. Every time we do this, I'm like, I get a little excited because I get to learn a little bit. I get to talk and uh, maybe get something off my chest or whatever and listen to you and listen to you get stuff off your chest and talk about family life. and Yeah. Which, by the way, how's the granddaughter doing? I know she just turned nine months. She's crawling now. All right. That's... Yeah. She's, so it begins. She's on the verge. She's been on the verge of crawling for a couple of weeks and Mm-hmm. And she just broke through last night, so she's got kind of a funky, right on, a funky crawl going on. It's not full on conventional crawl, but she's moving. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I remember when my when my first daughter, she didn't crawl right away. She just rolled, rolled around. It was really funny. <laughs> yeah, my my kids did that too. Two of my kids were yeah. rollers, and they never crawled. They just rolled. <laughs> <laughs> That's always great. That's always fun. Yeah. So uh, what did you think of my chat with Owner Tukel? Oh, well, I think it was truly a solid interview, Brian. I mean, Owner Tukel, when listening to his interview and the way he talks about his approach to making films and just the energy that Owner has in this discussion and the way he describes his work or his interactions, I think I was telling you the other day, he reminds me a little bit of Quentin Tarantino. I agree. I was thinking the same thing as I was talking to him. And the way he was talking about his process, but also, like you say, the energy, the pace that he talks at, Mm -hmm. there's this very Quentin Tarantino-esque vibe to how enthusiastic he is about film, about his process. And also, he's just not very precious about talking about film. He he loves to get his hands dirty and just do the thing. He he dives in and he, he writes. And whenever he's done writing, he finds funding and he starts shooting. Yeah. And he doesn't wait around for perfect circumstances to do it. That's right. That might be a little different than Quentin Tarantino who has far fewer films than Owner Tukel has. Right. I think, you know, Quentin's approach is he has A-list actors at his disposal and also the ability and the luxury to sit back and just wait till everything falls into place. Right. But in terms of how he talks about film, how he views film, there's a lot of parallels there between owner and it's interesting that you said that between owner and, and Quentin, because we were both thinking the same thing, mm-hmm. but found out after we listened to the interview that we shared those views. I really enjoyed talking to owner and you know it was an episode that went so long that we had to make some tough decisions and cut part of the interview just to make it manageable because I think it was going to be over two hours long if we left in. Yeah. Like the first 15 minutes, he was interviewing me. Mm-hmm. So anybody who's anybody who's interested in hearing that and hearing his interview of me, that's on YouTube. We left all of the stuff that we cut, we just left it on YouTube for folks who may be interested in, I guess you could call that bonus content. Right. 
And I enjoyed it, but I also felt like we owed it to our audio-only audience to make those tough decisions and to try to trim it down to its essence. But still, it's down to like an hour and 45 minutes or something like that, Yeah, which is really, really long for one episode. And maybe we should have cut it into two volumes, volume one, volume two, but I just figured, leave it all in. You know, Tim Ferriss and Mark Marin and all of my idols in the podcast world, they don't care how long their interviews are. Right. So why should I? <laughs> well, I, th- I think it's great. I think the content is good enough that we could just leave it the way it is. And, you know, like you said, cut it down to a reasonable, reasonable length to listen to. And I think that's, I think that's pretty good. Uh, you know, what I like about Owner is he's one of these filmmakers that isn't afraid to push boundaries and go further into subjects that a lot of other filmmakers would be afraid to go. And I think he talks about that a couple of times where maybe he's pitched an idea or made a film where after seeing it, they're like, you know, this is a really great film, but we can't release this film. Right. For whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Or maybe he's trying to get investors for the film. And once they hear about what the film is about or the subject matter of the film, they kind of back out and they don't want to be a part of it. But on the other hand, there are people out there that recognize owner's talents and recognize that this guy is not afraid to push the envelope. And they totally respect that enough that they want to be a part of it. Owner Tukel is one of the most unique filmmakers I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Mm -hmm. He makes films that are really edgy and almost avant-garde in terms of their humor and the topics. One of the very first films that he made was called Ding-A-Lingless. And he sent me, (laughs) after this interview, he sent me the screener link to it because I couldn't find it online. Mm -hmm. But it's a man who doesn't have a penis who is uh, (laughs) trying, trying to date and the challenges that that presented in the dating world, not having... I'm sorry I laughed at that. That's, that's not, that's not <laughs> funny. I think, it's, I think it's supposed to be kind of a funny premise for a movie. Okay. But I haven't watched it yet. I plan on watching it next week. But those are the types of films that he cut his teeth on. And then over time started... I mean, it's so prolific. Putting out a movie every year or two, but over time started to broaden his horizons a little bit. And at the same time, he's holding on to these connections that he made in the acting world, in the film world, like with Max Casella, who's in a lot of his films, and Kevin Corrigan. Mm -hmm. And so he has people that he can rely on that trust him, that respect him, and, and the respect is mutual. And he keeps cranking out really solid movies. This one that we were here to talk about during this interview, which is Scenes from an Empty Church, I think is his first film that is somewhat mainstream. Hmm. And I say that not as a dig at all, because I think some filmmakers might think of that as an insult to be called a mainstream filmmaker. Hmm. But what I mean by that is it has broad appeal. And I think that's a good thing because I think more people are going to see that movie and know this man's talent as a filmmaker because of its broad appeal. Right. And for those who didn't listen to the interview with Owner Tukel and want to know more about Scenes from an Empty Church, you know, check out the trailer on YouTube. We'll put a link, of course, in the, in the Duocast show page for that trailer and put it in the show notes for Owner Tukel's episode. Okay. It was written during the pandemic, shot during the pandemic, and it's about the pandemic, kind of, but it focuses on the relationships of these two priests and a friend of the priest in the the height of the pandemic in New York City and how they were all navigating the issue of human connection. How do you maintain human connection when 
it is physically almost impossible to have human connection without right. endangering the life of yourself and others. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty straightforward in terms of the plot, and it's funny. It has some fantastical, farcical elements to it because I think that's just his personality. Right. He's going to throw in things that are a little bit goofy <laughs> sometimes, but I enjoyed the film. I really enjoyed my chat with owner. And I felt like at the end, and you'll see this in the YouTube version if anybody's interested, but at the end, he offered to read my screenplays. He wants to get together in New York. And we followed up in an email exchange afterwards about you know how we want to connect and possibly, and this sounds crazy, but even possibly make movies together. Wow. If I want to get into film financing or producing. Wow. Of course, any indie filmmaker is going to be interested in someone who might be interested in financing a movie. <laughs> so sure. Maybe that's the only reason he wants to talk to me. But it was really fun to talk to someone at Owner Tickell's level as a filmmaker who was, number one, just as interested in me as I was in him. And number two, invited me to show him my screenplays so he could provide feedback on those. I've never had that happen before. And that's not why I'm doing this. So that's not my motive, my ulterior motive for starting this podcast. Right. But I tell you, it feels really good to make a connection like this where you actually feel just like with Al D, when we interviewed Al D, I felt like I made a friend yeah. during that interview and in the follow-up afterwards. And that's why I felt with owner Tikel. So it happens sometimes. And when it does, it's really special where that connection goes deeper than just the interview. That's great. No, that's a solid interview. I think people should check it out. Uh, you definitely will not be disappointed. Yeah. And if you're interested in hearing kind of a far out story, it's it's one of the craziest stories I've heard <laughs> during the podcast uh, over the last three years or so. Mm-hmm. He was kicked off of two Doug Benson podcasts. <laughs> that's right. And he tells the story of how he was kicked off the first one and how he and Anne Haish were kicked off the second podcast <laughs> with Doug Benson. Yeah. I saved that question for the very end. And so you'll have to either fast forward to the end to hear it or listen to the entire thing to catch that story. But it's well worth the wait. Oh, yeah. Because it's it's <laughs> hilarious. I mean, he and he's so self-deprecating. And he recognizes that it was his fault. He takes responsibility for it. But at the same time, you just can't help but have belly laughs listening to how this all went down. He's so visual. Like the way he's telling the story, you can just see it almost like it's a movie playing in (laughs) your mind. Yep. Getting drunk, getting high, (laughs) and then getting kicked off. So that's just one of many stories that he tells. And it's a great episode. Yeah. So, Jason, there's something in the news. And We don't always talk about current events, Mm. but there's something in the news that popped up that I want to get your take on. Okay. I heard, I haven't seen the actual evidence of it yet. I haven't read the law, but I heard that Seattle has decriminalized psychedelic mushrooms. Nice. And I wanted to get your take on that because I know this is a topic that you are fascinated by Mm -hmm. and that you have paid attention to. Uh, That's putting it euphemistically, probably. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, you, you've you've been tuned into this issue for years now. Uh, what do you think about this law and why do you think they did it? Well, first of all, I just want to say it's about time. But um, I have, you know, the question I have is why just Seattle? You know, why not statewide? Why not nationwide? Why not worldwide? Really? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the answer to that is simply one of either fear 
or just a misunderstanding of these types of substances. You know, it's like fear of the unknown, basically. Right. And here's what we do know, or what I know. It's not about addiction. You know, it's not like opioids when it comes to psilocybin mushrooms, because mushrooms and other forms of psychedelics like, let's say, mescaline or LSD, for example, have almost the opposite effect of, of addiction. There's almost like a repulsion, or maybe that's not the right word. There's a pushback effect with psychedelics that, depending on the dosage, can either put you in a wonderful, beautiful place with a positive state of mind, or it can rattle your fucking world and make you not want to go there again. <laughs> and, you know, there are several factors that play a part in that outcome. But in my opinion, as to why these mushrooms and other psychedelics have been illegal for a long time, is the fact that these substances have been used for thousands of years by various cultures as spiritual sacraments and used ceremoniously, you know, by these different cultures, ancient cultures. We're talking thousands of years ago. So mm -hmm. when you look at it that way, you have, and this is kind of going to, it's probably going to sound a little conspiracy theory-like, but this has been stated by other people. You have our government and other governments from other countries who are afraid that if we let the populace have these powerful spiritual substances, that they will have less control of their minds in terms of religion and any other kind of spiritual beliefs and, and also social structure. So in my experience, and I've used psilocybin several times, I'll admit that. The first time I took mushrooms, I think I was 19 or 20 years old. And mm -hmm. it, was, it was an eye-opener in so many ways. It was a true mind opener. And it gave me a perspective of being and understanding that I had never been a part of before. You know, I was never a religious person growing up or spiritual or whatever. What it did is it made me a more sympathetic person. Mm -hmm. You know, it opened my mind to things that were previously unopened. I think it made me a better person, honestly. And I'm, I'm not saying everybody should go out and just run out and start taking psychedelic mushrooms because you know, it's not for everybody. Right. Everyone's experience is different. And I think that if you, I think you have to be in a good frame of mind and be in an environment that is comfortable and safe. They talk about it. It's called set and setting is what they call it. Mm -hmm. And, and just not take them willy nilly without studying it and understanding how psilocybin works in the body and how it affects you. Perhaps having someone there with you that has been through it before and can keep you safe through the process. And yes, that type of thing. They call it, yeah, you, you, you need to have a guide and you need to have somebody there to kind of watch over you as you're doing this, you know? So um, I, don't, I don't know why people take mushrooms and go to rock concerts. I never understood that because it's just not really an environment that it's not made for that. You know, this is something you, you need to be careful with, do your research, and you're, you're either going to like the experience or you're, you're, you're not going to enjoy the experience. So that's my take on it. I don't know anything about the law that was passed or whatever to make these things legal or decriminalized, but I'm interested to hear about it and to see how far we're going to take it as far as statewide, uh, different states. So I'm just interested. As they say, once the camel's nose is in the tent, mm -hmm. it's just a matter of time before the entire camel <laughs> makes its way into the tent. Uh -huh. And that's kind of the way it was with, with marijuana in Washington state. Right. I think it started with a movement in Seattle and then just kind of went into an initiative and eventually became a law mm -hmm. that may happen with psychedelic mushrooms. But I think there's not as much understanding about them. There's more mystique surrounding 
that substance than there is marijuana. But I, I do know there's a lot of research, and Tim Ferriss, one of my favorite podcasters out there, does a lot of research on psychedelics in general, not just psychedelic mushrooms, but mm -hmm. all kinds of synthetic and natural psychedelics mm -hmm. for use as antidepressants or treatment for chronic, severe, debilitating depression and anxiety. Mm. And as you say, I think what's going on there is that these psychedelics do expand and rewire your brain, which is super scary to think about and talk about. Mm -hmm. But that rewiring process that takes place does sometimes rewire the brain to the point where you are no longer struggling with chronic disabling depression or anxiety. Right. And to the extent that it becomes a treatment as opposed to just a recreational drug, right. You know, maybe that will be the window into widespread legalization. But yeah, thanks for sharing your thoughts on that, Jason, and also your personal experience with it. I know that's a, kind of a vulnerable thing to do hmm. on a podcast, but I'm sure that listeners appreciate hearing your perspective, even if they disagree with you. Well, I know. And um, I don't know. For me, it started off as a curiosity, and uh, I did some research before I ever did it. You know, I'm, I did a lot of reading, and I had some really good experiences. I had some not-so-good experiences with uh, those types of substances, and I don't advocate. I don't go out and tell people, you need to take this stuff. Try it out. Because like I said, it's not for everybody. And I would feel really terrible if, you know, I got somebody into taking psychedelics and they did something crazy and got hurt. So like I said, do your research, folks. Well, thanks for that, Jason. Yeah. So I, I also wanted to share with you, and, and we used to talk about these things a lot more in terms of what we're paying attention to, what we're watching, what we're reading. Mm -hmm. And I stopped doing that because the duo cast just got too long and I wanted to keep these kind of short and tight and concise. Mm -hmm. But I read a book recently that was kind of a game changer for me, and I wanted to share it with you. Okay. The book is by Jeff Tweedy of Wilco. I don't know if you listen to Wilco much or, or Jeff Tweedy's solo work, but it's called How to Write One Song. I think that's the title. Hmm. And it is a really fascinating deep dive into his process of songwriting. And when I approached the book, oh, by the way, I got this idea from Owner Tukel. So during the interview, <laughs> Owner mentioned that there was a book called How to Write a Song by Jeff Tweedy. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to read that. So yeah, I got it. I, I got the audio book from King County Library for free. And uh, the reason I wanted to listen to it is I thought that just hearing him talk about it, and he, he is the one who reads the book in the audio version, mm -hmm. hearing him talk about it and maybe actually play tunes might be a more multimedia dynamic experience than just literally turning a page and reading about it. And it is a great book. And the reason, Jason, I'm bringing it up with you is that you're a songwriter mm. and I know you have your own process and approach, but I think you would benefit from either reading this book or listening to the audiobook version because I, I was skeptical going in, like, how do you define this sort of undefinable thing that a lot of songwriters describe as, you know, I'm just a vessel, you know, the song just kind of came to me out of nowhere, that almost sounds spiritual in a way. Right. And how do you teach that? Yeah. And Jeff Tweedy basically dispels the notion that this is a spiritual process. He's not saying that you can't have a spiritual experience or a mystical experience 
writing songs or that songs don't just magically appear sometimes. Sometimes they do. Mm-hmm. But he said there's a craft to it, just like Sue Ennis, the songwriter that I interviewed a couple of months ago, who wrote many of the songs for Heart. She described it as a craft as well. And she has a, a workshop, in fact, a class that she teaches in Seattle at a college there uh, where she teaches the nuts and bolts and the mechanics of songwriting. And Jeff Tweedy does that in this book. So I highly recommend it. I'm going to put it in the show notes to this episode and uh, check it out. You can get it for free at the library or get it on Amazon, I'm sure. But I'm going to implement those techniques this weekend, I think, and see if I can crank out a song. Oh, that would be great. I'm going to have to read it too, because I want to see what, you know, I always like to hear other people's approach to actually coming up with songs, whether they're sitting down and purposely trying to write a song or if they you know, just walking down the street one day and a tune pops in your head and you're like, I got to get to a piano right now. You know, that's the kind of stuff like um, Paul McCartney, for example, would talk about Right. waking up in the morning with a song in his head mm-hmm. and going right to the piano and, you know, the song became yesterday. Yeah. I mean, that that blows me away. That fascinates me. And so I like to hear other people's approach to writing songs. My approach to it these days, I, I have like terrible writer's block, so I don't really sit and try to write anymore, but it's usually a drum beat and a bass line, and then it kind of just goes from there. I'm always tinkering with plugins and stuff like that in the studio. So if I get a good good drum beat or a good uh, something, bass line, whatever, I can work around that and usually come up with something, but it's been tough lately. <laughs> yeah. Well, he talks about writer's block. So there's a mm. chapter dedicated to that, or at least a section dedicated to it. So you will benefit from reading this book. I know it. Okay. When you read it, let's talk about it on the next Dualcast. Sounds good. So what do we have coming up next, Jason? Well, I believe uh, you just got through talking to Justine Bateman. Yep. Yeah. Similar experience with Owner as, as I had with Justine. There was a really deep connection that happened on that interview. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that very often. You know, I, I talk about going deep on certain subjects, but Justine and I really connected on a deep level. And maybe she disagrees with me, but it went pretty long. I was actually having to cut it off after an hour and a half mm-hmm. because I'm trying to be respectful of her time and of the publicist time. Her publicist was on the line as well. Mm-hmm. And also my listeners too. I want to try to keep these as concise as possible, but man, she was so amazing in terms of her perspective on creativity mm. and how to how to break into the business, how to find your purpose creatively and how she has done it. And the fun thing about talking to Justine is that even though she was a big star in the 80s and 90s and has had an incredible career after acting, going to UCLA, getting her degree in computer science, becoming a licensed pilot, mm-hmm. uh, having a clothing line, Right, writing and directing movies, and she wrote this movie called Violet, which she directed, uh, starring Olivia Munn and Justin Theroux, nice, and Luke Bracy. Yeah, so she's really an amazing artist, but she has this perspective that is that of a person who has seen huge fame in the eighties and nineties from the television series Family Ties in her role as Mallory, mm-hmm. and also you know acting in movies like. Satisfaction with Julie Roberts and all kinds of TV shows and Californication. But she didn't maintain that fame because it's very difficult to maintain that level of success. And so she has the perspective of someone who used to be famous and then someone who is sort of uh, looking in the rearview mirror as maybe her best days are behind her 
from a fame perspective. And so she wrote this book called Fame that I read before the interview. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it added a lot of great context to the conversation. And I think that's why the interview went as long as it did. We were able to tie in some of those themes that she talked about in the book Fame with her career, with the movie Violet. And it turned out to be a really in-depth conversation that I was just not expecting. Yeah. I've um, I listened to a little bit of the interview as I start to edit it and notice that uh, you know she she had mentioned that you had mentioned the book fame and that she hadn't really talked about it in a while but i I'd, I'd seen her on larry king one of larry king's sort of his online show or his podcast or whatever you want to call it and where she talked about that book and like going full circle into fame kind of the climb into fame peeking out at fame and then just kind of the descent and then the fallout basically where you get to a point where you realize you're not famous anymore she talks about it in the interview about not being able to get a table at a restaurant like she used to. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like one day that just happens and you realize, oh, I guess I'm not famous anymore. So she's seen it all. Yeah. And she has her own perspective of how that works. And I think that the way she describes it totally, you see it happen a lot. You know, it takes a lot for an actor to go from that kind of fame and then out of it to get back into it again. And so I think the path that she's at right now in writing and directing films I think it's probably her true calling. Yeah, and it has nothing to do with fame. Exactly. What she's doing right now. Exactly. She really has no interest in fame other than studying the subject. I think she finds it fascinating mm-hmm. how difficult it is to define fame and how you achieve it or how you obtain it and what it means to the audience, why they're so attracted to people who are famous. Right. Basically, how does fame become a thing? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to the audience? What does it mean to the famous person? And what does it mean when it's gone? Right. And she is really reckoned with it and is at peace with it. So it's not like she's complaining about the fact that she's no longer as famous as she used to be in the 80s or 90s. Right. I think she approached it with a real academic intellectual mind because that's what she is. She's just a super bright intellect. Totally. And her film Violet, we'll talk about it probably in the duo cast where we recap that episode more in depth. but. It's a really cutting edge film, and she attracted some great talent with Justin Throw narrating and Olivia Munn as the lead actress. So uh, I'm glad that she found that kind of talent to be in this movie because I think that it will result in more people seeing it. It did get into South by Southwest this year, and uh, she talks about how that happened in the process of getting into that festival, and then, of course, about how it made its way into theaters on October 29th and also on uh, video on demand a week later. Nice. And I think the uh, the fame book also could probably be used as a guideline for people that are thinking of getting into television or being an actor in television or film and how you deal with the, you know, the onset of fame and how you deal with the fallout of fame, because it happens to everybody, you know, unless you're like, like she said, unless you're like Tom Cruise or, you know, somebody like that, where Brad Pitt. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a career, you know, you could pretty much keep your career going just because you're an A-lister or whatever. Um, so I think it's a good thing that she wrote that. I think it could help because so many young actors get into the business and once they've hit fame and tailed out, they don't know how to deal with it. They kind of deal with it in a wrong way and they don't know how to manage it. So I think that the it sounds like it could be an important book. It is. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. 
And it's actually available at the public library if you want to pick it up for free, or of course, it's available on Amazon too. We know one other future guest that I wanted to talk about is, and this is still in the works, it's actually not booked yet. Okay. But there's an old friend of my dad's. My dad passed in 2003, but he was best friends with a guy named Ken Kinnear Mm. back in the 70s. Yeah. How he met Ken Kinnear was uh, Ken was managing the band Hart, and my dad became Hart's tour pilot. And in the 80s, Ken Kinnear started the Gorge Amphitheater. He is the person behind all of the concerts at the Gorge. And for folks who are not from the Pacific Northwest, maybe you've heard of the Gorge, maybe you haven't. Uh, But for people here in the Pacific Northwest, and especially Washington State, Seattle, Yakima, Ellensburg, Spokane, the Gorge is the premier place to see just about any musical act. It is picturesque. It's right on the Columbia River. Yeah, It's almost like Colorado's Red Rocks. Yeah, I was going to say. It's just an amazing venue. Yeah. I was going to say, it's kind of like our Red Rocks. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So Ken started that. And I have a connection to him for that reason, because he knew my dad. And I knew Ken back in the day. And Ken would actually put me in 20 of my closest friends, or as many friends as I wanted, on the guest list of any concert that was playing the Gorge. So I saw tons of concerts at the Gorge. And the reason I want to talk to Ken for a lot of reasons, but primarily he is featured in a new movie called Enormous, The Gorge Story. And it's a documentary on the gorge. And uh, nice. some of the artists featured in that documentary are Mike McCready from Pearl Jam, Dave Matthews, of course, who has like mm-hmm. three-day concerts there every year, sometimes twice a year. And you know, there's just a lot of acts that have benefited from the history and the lore of the Gorge venue mm-hmm. and have made that place a historical venue, made that place iconic. And Ken Kinnear is part of that history. So I hope to book him soon. And we've been talking because he wants to start a podcast and he was picking my brain about the logistics of that. Mm-hmm. But I think he's going to be on the show sometime in November. Well, yeah. That might be a lo- longer episode as well because we have a lot to talk about in terms of our personal connection and uh, my dad and his friend, Greg, but I'm sure it'll go in other places as well. So we have that to look forward to. Well, how cool is that, that you got to see all those concerts and get on the, on the list, as you said? I mean, that's amazing. Totally amazing. And this was, what, when you were in high school or after high school or? Pretty much high school, high school and beyond. Okay. So you probably got to see like whoever you wanted to, Bob Dylan, uh, Bruce Hornsby in the range, uh, Robert Cray, all those people, I, I would imagine. You name it. Yeah. You name it. Steve Miller. Nice. Emerson Lake and Palmer, oh. James Taylor, Dude. Fleetwood Mac. Dude. Yeah. In fact, you mentioned Bob Dylan. That was the very first Gorge concert I went to. I think that was either 87 or 88. Nice. And you know who opened for Bob Dylan? It was supposed to be The Alarm. Oh. But it was actually a new artist that nobody had heard of. Tracy Chapman. Oh, wonderful. She's wonderful. Oh, she just blew everybody away. And I was so glad that it was Tracy and not the alarm. I liked the alarm and I was looking forward to it, but I wasn't, I don't think I would have been completely shocked by a performance from the alarm. Right. And Tracy Chapman, you know, expectations are everything. And if you go into a concert with zero expectations about the opening act, I actually left that concert feeling like Tracy Chapman's performance was way better than Bob Dylan's. Oh yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Bob is the type of performer, at least he was at the time, 
would get up on stage, almost like Willie Nelson, mm -hmm. get up on stage and there's almost no acknowledgement of where he even is. You don't even know if he knows <laughs> where he is. <laughs> so it's not, a lot of times, at least they'll give you like, hello, Seattle, or, you know, hello, Gorge, something like that to kind of indicate that they have their sense of bearings. <laughs> but, right. you know, Bob gets up there, almost no interaction with the audience whatsoever and uh, Zero Charisma just plays his songs. They're great songs. Oh, yeah. But Tracy Chapman, Tracy Chapman was amazing. Well, I, I went up there. I had a, one of my favorite memories of going up there was I took my dad up there for his birthday, uh, or his birthday present was this concert. It was Stevie Ray Vaughan opening up for Joe Cocker. Ah. Uh, Dude. And it was the last. You saw Stevie? It was his last. It was about a month before he died. It was his last show at the Gorge. And I got to see it. It was oh, what an amazing opportunity! Oh, it was fucking unbelievable, honestly. And what's funny about that? The one of the funniest memories I have of that that I have of that concert is my dad actually getting a contact high because <laughs> he was not a pot smoker. He was a beer drinker, kind of straight laced dude. And so he and I we went our separate ways. I went and got stoned with some friends and watched the concert, and he went off and sat down somewhere and watched it. And when I met up with him about 45 minutes later, he was glossy eyed and talking a mile a minute. And I was just like, what's going on, dude? He goes, I don't know. What had happened was, you know, there was so much weed being smoked at this concert that he got a contact high. He's, he's not a, a pot smoker. So <laughs> just a little bit of, of smoke in your lungs and you're walking around and everybody's smoking. It's like, you're, you're bound to get high. That's so funny. So there's, there's my dad sitting on the grass just glazed over and just having the time of his <laughs> life. And I, I love that memory. I went up there again and saw Nine Inch Nails and uh, Jane's Addiction. Oh my goodness. Boy, you really saw some great shows. Yeah. But th those are the only times I, I think that's the only time I went there was those two times. So it is a great place. And what a view, especially when the sun, sun's going down. Holy crap. Well, if this interview happens and we happen to do a duo cast where we recap the episode, I'm going to tell you some stories okay. of personal experiences at the Gorge. All right. And there's one crazy one that I'll share with you at the appropriate moment. We've already been going pretty long here, so okay. I'll save it for later. But yeah, the Gorge is one of those venues that creates lifelong memories mm -hmm. for the folks that attend these concerts and for the performers, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. So I look forward to seeing that movie called Enormous, The Gorge Story. Maybe you can check it out too, and we can talk about it. I'm going to check it out for sure. So yeah, let's do that. Right on, brother. And man, it's been good connecting with you. Yeah, you too. Have a good weekend. You too, brother. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.